morning. Good morning. Good, good to see you all. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption uh, Church. Welcome. We are continuing our time through the Gospel of John as we study verse by verse through this great eyewitness uh, account about the person of Jesus. Not just a, uh, a good man, not even a good teacher or a profound prophet, but the Son of God who put on flesh and came into the world. The long-awaited promised King, the Christ, the one who's come. Behold the Christ. That is our sermon series title as we've walked through the Gospel of John. Uh, last week, as Josh mentioned earlier, we started John chapter 11 and we looked at the event of the death and the resurrection of a man named Lazarus, where Jesus used those events to point to a greater truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Where we looked at Jesus' means, Jesus' motivation, and Jesus' message as the resurrection and the life, and that those things are not simply events that took place, although they are wonderful events. They are indeed a person, and that person is Jesus. Today we're going to pick back up in John chapter 11, and as, as much as the slides are supposed to be without error, we're actually going to read all the way through verse 57, which is the end of the chapter. So if you've already been in John chapter 11, you know it doesn't er uh, land in verse 56. What do you know? We're actually going to read all the way through verse 57. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me. Uh, the sermon title for this morning is on the screen behind me. It is The Plot or the Plan. The Plot or the Plan. And the roadmap for our time this morning is I want to look at two large sections. And what do you know? The sermon title kind of gives it away. We're going to look at the plot first and foremost. We're going to ask the question, what is the context of the plot what is the plot rooted in? Where does it come from? And then what does it produce? That's what we're going to look at first. And then second, which is where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning, is the plan. Answering questions like, what is the plan? Whose plan is it? And what is the result of the plan? And then by God's grace, drawing application along the way that would shape our lives inform us as individuals and as a church that want to live for God's kingdom. And so, Lord God, we just ask that you'd lead on as we open up your word this morning. If you would, uh, John chapter 11, I'm just going to ask you all to stand once more as we read uh, the text, beginning in verse 45, and we're going to read through the chapter. 11 verses compared to the 44 we did last week, we should be fine, yeah? We should be fine, we'll see. We'll see. Verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He said this, he did not say this of his own accord, 
but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead in a town called Bethany. Bethany, we know from the text, is about two miles east of Jerusalem, which is the main Jewish city. And all of the signs and miracles and teachings were told here again in verse 45 and 46 produce two responses in the ministry of Jesus. One is the response of belief in the person of Jesus. And one is unbelief. And this miracle and the sign was not only in and of itself a high profile miracle, right? Raising a man that had been dead for four days and bringing him back to life, that's a big deal. But it also took place in proximity to the highest profile city that it could have possibly taken place next to, which is Jerusalem, which contained the highest profile Jewish leaders around the highest profile feast called the Passover, verse 55. So needless to say, this event was explosive. It was explosive both in terms of belief in Jesus, we're seeing that in the text, but also in resolved unbelief with results in great fear for the Jewish leaders. Verse 46, we see a report is brought back to the Pharisees. Now this was a group of uh, religious leaders that we've met along the journey in the book of John, which results in them gathering together the council, all of them together called the Sanhedrin. And they came to discuss what must be done, verse 47. Now this is the context for the plot. A group of highly influential leaders, motivated out of great fear. Fear rooted in what Jesus' actions might bring about for them. Now up to the point in the Gospel of John, we know that the Jewish leaders did not like Jesus. A plain reading of the text tells us that. That there are times in the account, in the Gospel of John, where they tried to seize him. They even tried to kill him through stoning, but with no luck. And all throughout Jesus' public ministry, there have been a large disdain for Jesus. The Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was unworthy of his popularity and deep belief that Jesus was a blasphemer, one who dishonored the name of God and broke God's rule. All of that is true, but this is different. Fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Fear is the thing that has brought them to this place to begin to start scheming. It's important to remember up to this point in the account of John that the Jewish leaders' response to what Jesus was up to was highly reactive 
and it's moving from reactive to proactive here in this event. To plot literally means to make a plan in secret to do something illegal or harmful, and that's exactly what they're about to do. Verse 47, the question's raised like, what are we to do? Right? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him keep on like this, like everybody's going to believe in him, and the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away both our place and our nation. Fear is at the root of the plot. So then the question is, fear of whom? It's not really fear of Jesus directly, although they have fear of him. Verse 48 tells us it's fear of the Romans. And I think this is the only time that the word Romans is used in all of the Gospels. That if Jesus keeps on going the way that he's going, everybody's going to believe in him. Interesting how pride works right there. They're pointing out something that everybody's going to believe in, but they themselves won't believe in because they're all wrong. And if everybody believes in Jesus, that's going to cause the Roman authorities to come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, during this time, we know that the Jewish history of the Israelite people, the Jews, are under Roman occupation. In fact, depending on your reading of history, it's been about 700 or 800 years since the Israelite people have been an independent state that have governed themselves. So long forgotten are the days of independence. Instead, notice that the Jewish leaders aren't in these verses wanting liberation. That's actually not what they want right now. They don't want liberation from Rome. They're not interested nor willing to believe that Jesus might be able to do that. Instead, they are satisfied, at least in part, with not losing what they have. Now, in recent history, They've seen what it looks like for Jews to rise up and attempt to take back their autonomy. Rome would come in and they'd crush the small res, uh, the revolt and many people would die. And for what? That's their thinking. And if the revolt were to happen so near or even in Jerusalem, like who knows what Rome might do? They might come in and they might sack the city and level the temple, which was what they meant when they said our place. That's the temple. So fear of all of that is what is producing this plot against Jesus. Verse 49, apparently there were lots of questions, but no good answers. I hate meetings like that. Don't you? Lots of questions, no good answers. But there's one, a man named Caiaphas, who's willing to give an answer. Caiaphas, we know from the text here that he is the high priest at the time. He served for about 18 years in total. We meet him in other places, in the Gospels as well in the book of Acts. And what we see here in John is to be expected based on what we see elsewhere. He's not a nice guy. He's not a good leader. And this is essentially what he says. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop talking. 
you know nothing at all, like close your mouths and listen up. We know what the problem is. Let's stop talking about the problem. I'll tell you the solution. Verse 50, like get this through your heads. That's, that's the tone. It's better for you and me that one man should die for us than for our nation or us die for one man. Don't overcomplicate this. It's simple. The ends justify the means. We just need to find a substitute. If Rome will kill us, we just need to kill Jesus first. In order that Rome will not come, let one man die, not the whole nation. We don't know if there was further dialogue around this plot, but what we do know from the text is that at some point, agreement is made, yep, Jesus has to die. That is better for us. And so the plot is made. Rooted in unbelief concerning Jesus, which brings great fear, which produces the plot. Kill Jesus before we get killed by the Romans. Which only leaves one last question for our section here on the plot, which is verse 51. How does the plot connect to the plan. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, some translators have replaced the phrase his own accord with the word authority or own or from himself, which if we were left uh, up to that, that would be like highly confusing and open a door for speculation Like, what does it mean that Caiaphas said that, but somehow didn't say it? Like, he didn't really say it. Like, it's confusing, but I believe verse 52 explains it for us. It says that he prophesied that Jesus was going to die. So prophecy, in short, is forward-telling truth, foretelling truth. And in the context of this truth, we know the source of such prophecy was God. God used Caiaphas' own words. Get this. This is crazy which Caiaphas meant and had his own meaning. God, in turn, had a different meaning of Caiaphas' own words. So they're Caiaphas' own words that he meant to say, but Caiaphas did not intend to say what God meant for him to say, but he said it. Which helps us as the readers of the text to see that the plot fully formed out of sin and rebellion against God, God not only used, but had all along an alternative motive for this plot, which was his plan. Which is the second part of our time this morning as we walk through the text, the plan. Now even though the plot is done in secret, Like all good secrets, they get out. Somehow it uh, becomes known to Jesus and his disciples and they get wind of it. Verse 54, which is why Jesus no longer walks openly amongst the people. 
the human sinful plot is shown as being a part of a grander and greater plan, the plan of God. And it is no coincidence that Jesus does the things that he does captured by John. And it's no coincidence here that Jesus' act of raising Lazarus from the dead will ultimately result in Jesus' own death and resurrection on the cross of Calvary. That's not a coincidence. Like This is a comforting and an amazing theme throughout the word of God, something that we looked at last week. From start unto finish, God is sovereignly writing the story of redemption, like directing all things towards that perfect redemption that we have in the face of his son, Jesus. People prepare, they plan, and guess what? They even plot But God's redemptive plan is never in danger of being altered. In some mysterious way, and mysterious ways, God directs all means, including those of sinful people, while yet remaining just and righteous, and humanity remaining accountable. That's what we see with this plot. It's really God's plan, and we actually see that in other places in the word of God Maybe best notably to this particular event is in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter is giving this great sermon in the temple. And what does he say? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's God's great plan, even in the midst of great plotting. And we see here in verse 51 and verse 52 that the result of God's plan and what that should look like. That Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John, in his like typical form, we've known this, we've seen this, like John loves irony. He just loves it. He says, yes, Jesus will die for you, but Jesus' death is not going to save you from the Romans. Because we will find out in Jewish history not long hereafter, after Caiaphas and the Jews have this little powwow plot, what happens 40 years later, just about? Rome actually comes in, he sacks the city of Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple anyway. So Jesus' substitutional death, Jesus dying in place of others, that's what substitution means, is not to help them escape the judgment of Rome. Instead, the blood of Jesus will be spilt. He will go unto his death, death on a Roman cross, to rescue people from the coming judgment of God because of our sin before him. Like, don't worry about the judgment of Rome and what they may or may not do. Be convicted Be concerned about the judgment of God. The just judgment against our rebellion and our lack of honoring and respecting God for who he is. Without Jesus' substitutionary death, we remain dead in our sins and under the mighty hand of God's judgment for that sin. But praise be to God that Jesus came. Because of his death and his resurrection, because he died, his payment for sin can be credited to you through faith in Jesus. Praise God. Like that's the gospel. 
Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. See him as the one that died for you to make peace for you. And this redemption, the peace by the death of Jesus, is available to who? Who's it available to? Verse 52, not just the Jews, not just the nation, that's the nation being referenced here, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now there's like belief out there that the phrase who are scattered abroad might reference the Jewish people not living in the physical locale of Israel. Um, I don't think that's right. I think John is saying something more profound here. I believe it's much more possible that John is telling us that those who are scattered abroad are other peoples. Other people, groups, non-Jews, pointing to the future inclusion of the Gentiles as part of the people of God. We saw this back in Jesus' teaching as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, didn't we? Jesus is teaching on this, and in John chapter 10, verse 16, what does he say? He says this, and I have sheep not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. That's the plan. To redeem for himself a people through the life, death, and glorious resurrection of God's only son, Jesus. That's the plan. Redemption through the face of Jesus. And we know it's God's plan even when it looks like man's plotting. Lastly, for our time this morning, let's turn our attention to the result of the plan which we've kind of already touched on. It's in verse 52. Draw our attention there again. What's the result? And not for the nation only, but also, now I want us to intentionally skip the next several words, move along to the phrase, who are scattered abroad. And I'm going to read it quickly that way. And not for the nation only, but also who are scattered abroad. So Jesus is going to die for the Jews, yes and amen, but he's also going to die for those who are scattered abroad. And those two peoples are going to be what? One people. What is Jesus' death going to result in? It's going to result in the gathering into one, the children of God. That's the result of Jesus' death here in this text. Our oneness. Now, this is a like deep, <laughs> deep, deep well. Like oneness that we have with Christ, oneness that we have with the Father because of what Jesus has done, and oneness that we have one to another. Now, I want to spend the next several minutes focusing in on the oneness that we have with one to another because both in these verses as well as in John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching as the good shepherd. John points us towards the truth that God is building for himself out of many peoples, one people. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at that truth, the plan of God resulting in our oneness, one 
to another. And I want us to consider this oneness that we have because of Jesus as followers of Jesus in two large categories. First, consider our oneness with the big C church. The church out there, if you'll let me use that language. And the second category, the small C church, the church in here. And a helpful illustration for me as I think through this oneness and how it should be expressed in these two categories is liking it to family. We have immediate families. That's the small C church, the local body of believers that all believers should be a part of. And then, praise God, we have extended family. The big C church, the large body of believers that, are, that all believers are a part of. So how does the idea of being one impact us in those two categories? Let's start first by looking at our oneness from an extended family perspective. Uh, the Greek word here for one, it denotes a strong emphasis on the idea of agreement and unity and things in common. It's, it's the same word that Jesus is going to use later on in John chapter 17 when he talks about the high priestly prayer and he prays for his disciples. And so church family, the first question that I have for us here is do we consider the church out there as extended family? personalize it for yourself for a moment. When you run into somebody at Starbucks, let's say, it's somebody that you know, and you know that they go to another church in Greeley, Colorado, or even Windsor, or Severance, or you know, Evans, or Eaton. You run into somebody that goes to another church that's in close proximity to us, or you meet somebody new for the first time, and then you find out that they go to a church down the street. Like, what's your natural reaction to them? Do we see them as family? Children of the same king. Like, do you seek to encourage them in their walk with Jesus? Come alongside them to serve if needed. Be for them. Here's the hard one. Do we celebrate the advancement of the gospel even when that advancement isn't here, it's there? Do we celebrate that? God's timing's always good. I... I, I called, uh, I talked to a, a fellow church planter here in Greeley just a couple days ago. I, I called him, and it just so happened that I, I reached him on the phone when he had just finished meeting with a new visitor of his church. It's like, well, how'd that go? He's like, yeah, it was good. And, you know, he shared a little bit about who the guy was. And immediately, there was a spirit of competition that rose up in my wicked heart. You want to know why? It's not just because I'm a competitive guy, although that's true. It's because the guy that visiting that church was in this church not more than a couple weeks ago. It's easy for me to agree in principle that it's not about this little church. It's not about redemption. It's not about this ministry here when that agreement really doesn't cost me anything. 
It's easy to say. Like, Lord, like you can lead people where you want. They are your sheep. You are the greater shepherd. Until you start having your sheep move. Your sheep go to other churches. Like, those are the real tensions that I feel in my heart at times. Like, that is the true wickedness of my heart that can compromise my pursuit as a pastor of this church for my pursuit of oneness with our Christian family. Maybe oneness isn't compromised that way for you. Maybe it's the way that you're quick to make distinctions between that church and this church. Maybe there's some like theological distinctions that you are maybe just a little too eager to point out. And you don't just point it out in your own mind, but you you tell other people about them too. Maybe it has to do with church size. Like, how the church size, the the number of people that go there, impacts your view on the value that that church has in the kingdom. Like, they, they can't possibly be doing that right if they're that big. Church family, do we, do we see the church as extended family? Are we for them in this city? Are we quick to make them the enemy? And I know that that word's hard and harsh, but like, do we do that? Like, let us consider, let me consider, oh Lord God, that our oneness, like the health of our unity, for the glory of God, right, for the on-watching world, that our effectiveness individually and our collective health and the mission that we're called to are all at stake when we think about our oneness. Do we have a heart of oneness for that extended family, the broader, grander kingdom of God, which God alone is building only through the gospel? There's only one gospel, but lots of different churches. And if they're proclaiming the gospel, God is using them to build his kingdom. Amen? May we be a people that wants to fight for oneness with our extended family of believers. Lastly, as we draw to a close this morning, how does our oneness get expressed here as immediate family? We've talked about extended family for a couple seconds. Let's talk about immediate family. Big C church out there, small C church, the local church here. Over the last, uh, I don't know, five to seven days, I kind of lose count at some point. Um, We've had extended family into our home. We love our extended family. It's awesome. It's great. There's a lot going on. They stayed over in our home, so there's a lot of people in our house. It's wonderful. It's great. But it also makes me long for my immediate family. Like time together in our home, doing things our way. Like eating, (laughs) 
eating our types of food, living out our rhythms. Like anybody else relate to that? Like you love extended family, praise God. One day we're not going to be extended family. We'll be all real family before the throne of grace, um, Revelation chapter 5. But today there is a distinction, I would say. There's something unique and good about God's design to be a part of a family. So too should it be with the local church for all believers should be a part of one of them. Like our oneness ought to be on display as we spend time together, right? As we engage with each other, as we're committed to one another's pursuit of Jesus. At a bare minimum, that means coming together. At a bare minimum. Like, you, you can't experience oneness with us if you miss most of the times when our family gets together. You just can't. That's like being a family member that never eats together doesn't talk together, walk out life together, play games together, travel together, work together, whatever other elements of family life. In shortness, in short, like togetherness is the foundation for our oneness. But it's more than just being together. It's more than just showing up. It's more about it. It's more than just attendance. Like oneness is about being actively invested in one another's lives. Where you and I prioritize our time with our immediate family. That's what healthy families do. Like we we serve each other. We pray for and with each other. We're committed to helping one another grow as followers of Jesus. That we're committed family where older helps the younger and where the able helps the needy. So I think about that like, praise God. I look around the room. Like, praise God for the family happenings that are going on in this church. Praise God. There's lots of oneness being expressed in this church by God's grace. My prayer that Jesus would just fan that into flame in this church and in this city so that people that want and need that family see it and want to be a part of it. May we be a gathered group of believers who long to live out that oneness and that we would do that as the church body here as God's great way to bring forth the power of the gospel of Jesus to those that don't yet know it and to those that believe him and desire to follow him. Amen? Amen? Let us pursue oneness, church. Not for our great name, but for the great name of Jesus, the one who is gathering us together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you that you are the good and faithful daddy to us, your children, and when we when we fail, your blood covers all. When we when we try and we succeed, it's just a it's just a testimony of your grace and your spirit alive and at work, Lord God. You say in your word that you desire for the death of Jesus to result in oneness. Lord God, I pray that you would help us be individuals who pursue that in our own lives. Lord God, help us know what it is that you're calling us towards in this church, in this family of families, Lord God, and then by extension, the extended family, the greater church, because Lord God, we are one church under the banner of one king, Jesus. May your name be hallowed. And may you bring much fruit and much health and much glory to your name, O Lord God. We love you. Grateful for how that you have loved us first. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.